Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Matthew Bates. Uh, Dr. Bates currently serves as a th- professor of theology at Quincy University. Quincy's this little town on the west side of Illinois, really close to the Missouri River, right? I mean, it, it's a river Mississippi. town. Yeah, Mississippi, Mississippi, yeah. Yep. And, and, and uh, I think Hannibal LaGrange is just south of you all, so people in Missouri know. I mean, you're really close to the, obviously, uh, being on the Mississippi to Missouri border. It's a Catholic liberal arts college, and uh, Matt, you've been there for how long now teaching? This is the end of my 12th year. Wow, 12 years. And uh, Dr. Bates did his PhD at Notre Dame, and his expertise is in early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism. Uh, Matt has written a number of really, really good books. Uh, the one that I were talking with him a little before we started recording was, that made the big splash, for me anyway, was Salvation by Allegiance Alone, an incredible work that we're going to explore probably in a more accessible way with the book that's just come out, Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose. Uh, Dr. Scott McKnight wrote the foreword, and uh, it's published by Erdman's. And there's several other books that Matt has um, published. Um, The Gospel Precisely, Gospel Allegiance, Are You Hearing a Theme? (laughs) He's very, very adamant about getting the gospel right, which is crucial not just for lost people, but for saved people, too. And we'll come back and talk about that in a minute. Um, and then, of course, he, he's a theologian, so he's written on the birth of the Trinity, and, and he's written a book on hermeneutics. So welcome, Dr. Matt Bates, to our uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Rodney, and I've appreciated uh, some of your own scholarly offerings um, uh, over the years, so I'm grateful for your work, too. Thank you. All right, so here we go. I grew up hearing this kind of gospel. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church. I was on the cradle roll. <laughs> I was a Baptist before I was even born, so to speak. Um, and the gospel presentation that I heard was believe in Jesus so that your sins will be forgiven, resulting in when you die, you'll go to heaven. And that was pretty much the essence of the gospel. And so it was almost as if, and you couldn't help but make this inference, the gospel's for lost people. The go- Here's good news, lost people, uh, because of your sin, you're going to go to hell. But good news, God has provided a way of escape. Sometimes even there was a like a diagram, like a bridge, right? There's this gap between God and humanity, and there's this bridge that Jesus provides through his, often like a cross, and that through the cross of Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven, and therefore when you die, you have the assurance, the confidence that you'll go to heaven. Now, our pastor, and I grew up in Southern California, This I heard this message in the first Southern Baptist Church. Church of Compton, California. So I'm kind of straight out of Compton, Matt. Uh, uh, But also at teenage years in Missouri, after that, after we would hear the gospel presentation, and often he would preach that sermon at least once a month, then the question becomes, well, what am I supposed to do as a Christian? And that's when 
our pastor would rely upon Paul. Well, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. So you can be a good witness. Your primary goal is to be a good witness to say, hey, you need Jesus so that when you die, you'll go to heaven. But there came a point when you begin to realize, wait a minute, that's that's not enough. Being a Christian's got to be more than being a good church member or keeping to a moral code. And what Dr. Bates has done is he's he's reminding us that the gospel is so much bigger than that. So, uh, Matt, do you have a similar story about how you came to understand what is the essence of the gospel? And then your book, you know, I want to explore why did God send Jesus? Why? What is the purpose of the gospel? Yeah, I do have a somewhat similar story. This is maybe confusing to uh, listeners because my background, you might think, is Catholic, right? As I teach at a Catholic university and, you know, I did PhD work at the University of Notre Dame. But I grew up in a very conservative um, context uh, that would be broadly evangelical, more in the fundamentalist direction, even in a broad evangelicalism um, in Northern California, actually, uh, in the Redding area. So just east of the east of the Redding area in a small town. So, um, yeah, it was a non-denominational church with strongly Baptist sort of leanings overall. And it was a loving church, too. It was a place where I really and truly met Jesus of the deepest admiration uh, for uh, the pastor and his wife who took me under um, uh, under their wing, uh, it's Pastor Henry Winkleman. And, you know, but at the same time, as time grew and probably he would, have, I would doubtless have grown as a theologian too, right, over time. Uh, yeah, I, I realized that certain dimensions of the message that I was hearing were, were probably very much like you described it. And um, that did leave me confused, I think, as I was moving into my college years, trying to figure out what this Jesus business was all about. I'd met him. Uh, he'd changed my life in important ways. And I had a real second discovery of Jesus when I was in college. And that, that really awakened me. I actually took a New Testament course um, where all we did for three weeks, it was a January term course, was read the New Testament. Um, and the New Testament has a way of, of getting under your skin, right? When you do nothing but read it for a couple of weeks and listen to a, a, a good professor teach on it. Um, yeah, and the, the word of God is indeed living and active, right? As we discover. Um, and that that really helped me to come to an awareness that I, I had read the Bible a lot, but that I was really interpreting it strongly through individualistic lenses, but also um, through a kind of a, you know, maybe I had a sense that the Bible was just this collection of proof texts that just needed to be assembled in the right way. And I kind of flattened it all out. And I, I became aware of how deeply artistic the Bible is, how rich. Um, and that, that gave me, um, I think, confidence that the Bible demanded the most of me intellectually and not just um, it wasn't just a, a, a message about uh, for the lost, right? But also something that could grab every bit of me. Um, so that was a real important second moment for me. And, and I can say more about my journey as you wish, um, but I, that's enough to get you started. Yeah, exactly. So I remember my pastor, I, was, I remember even later trying to be a little confused about this. He would so adamantly preach, you know, the gospels for lost people get saved, which is indeed part of the gospel message as we'll talk about later, but that's not the whole gospel. Um, and, and then he would turn right around and complain about believers who see Jesus as fire insurance. And I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, but that's what we've heard over and over and over again, that he is fire insurance. 
And of course, our pastor thought, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to truly uh, live our faith? And rarely would we, he read the Gospels. It was almost like Jesus is the prolegomena of our faith. You know, it's, it's a necessary thing we got to have, but the real meat of the gospel, the theology of it, the, the essence of the significance and the intricacies of how Jesus' death somehow took care of our sin, we go to Paul. And Paul will use all these ideas and try to help us appreciate you know, this transaction that happened however you want to make, you know, interpret Paul's language. And the, but the moral code, the ethic, the, you know, how do I live to be a good witness? It was very much, you know, be a good church member. And after a while, that wore me out, being a good church member. And I thought, there's got to be something more. So I'm like you. I started in college. And in, in graduate school, starting reading the Gospels, hearing about the kingdom. I didn't hear much about the kingdom growing up in church. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing about a kingdom that Jesus emphasized over and over again. And I'm trying to put this together. How do the Gospels, the four Gospels, and Paul, how do they fit together? And I think part of what you're doing in your work, Matt, is saying, hey, Let's just not center on one part of the gospel. Let's not just center on one part of the New Testament. Let's read the whole thing. Let's embrace the whole gospel. That's not just for lost people, but for believers too. So what I want to start with with you is this. In your book, you call that that gospel of just, you know, it's basically getting my sins forgiven so that when I die, I go to heaven. You call it a malformed gospel. Let's talk about why it's malformed. What is the effect of that malformed gospel? And then if you would, feature some of the other malformed gospels that you identify. And that, I think, will lead into a, a, an appreciation of what the New Testament claiming the gospel really is. Yeah, so I think we could start by saying that's a malformed gospel because it misses the essence of what the Bible says the gospel is. Uh, which is that Jesus is the king or Jesus is the Christ, right? And so um, we hear so often the language Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah or whatever it might be that sometimes that can we can lose the significance of that language. And the way I put it in the book is to say that Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name. That Jesus Christ is a claim, not a name. And that's to help remind people that whenever we're talking about Jesus Christ, it means king. And whenever the gospel summarized, for instance, in Acts, you can look at there, there's some five statements in Acts where it says that the, the early church went out gospeling. The, and what were they gospeling? The message, the Christ is Jesus or Jesus is the Christ, various versions of that. Right. And so that that's the way the New Testament prefers to summarize the gospel is just with that bare assertion that Jesus is the king. So one of the things I'm I'm keen to emphasize in this book, why the gospel is that the gospel is king first. That if we don't put Jesus as king first, and if instead we put him as savior first, that we end up with a distorted gospel. And I think that's been maybe the most common misstep, right, has been the idea like, okay, what is, what's our problem? Okay, we have this sin problem. Uh, what's the solution? Jesus is your savior. Just believe that, trust in that, and the effectiveness of that, uh, of Jesus's death for your sins and his resurrection, trust in the effectiveness of all that, and then you get to go to heaven. Um, the reality is, is that Jesus's kingship comes first and that those benefits that we want, like forgiveness, only come through his kingship. 
And we've wanted to kind of carve that out. We wanted to, 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 to lop that part out about his kingship. And we've kind of made that secondary. We, we kind of go this way. We go, uh, believe that Jesus is savior. Oh, oh, and by the way, like he could be your Lord too. Like, you know, kind of as, as you're waving to people as they're, they're on the way out the doors, they've gotten their fire insurance, right? Uh, like he could be your Lord too, don't forget, right? Um, but, uh, but we've gotten all that backwards, right? It's actually that Jesus is Lord is what comes first and it's, or he's king first and it's through that kingship that the benefits that we want come, not apart from them. So um, I think that's the key way of speaking about the way in which that believe in heaven, you know, believe for the sake of heaven gospel is malformed. Right. So, well, I've got so many things running through my head right now. Uh, thinking about some of the expressions that were that I grew up with hearing, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So, so there was this, I don't know, uh, Matt, if you know about this, but I remember it in the 70s, there was this big debate about lordship salvation. And there was one group that was basically selling or promoting a gospel that the, its critics call it an easy believism. As long as you believe in Jesus, that's all, you know, and trust him for the forgiveness, and that's all that matters. Um, and then there was this other group that came along and said, no, no, no. Uh, it, again, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord of all. So he is when you, it's almost, it almost felt like a bait and switch, right? I believe in Jesus, like you were saying, okay, I've got my sins forgiven. Now here comes the switch. Oh, by the way, you just gave up your life. You just gave up everything you want for yourself. You, now we're talking about dying to self. Now we're talking about picking up a cross. Uh, salvation, now now that he's your savior, oh, by the way, you have to add this element that he's your Lord too. And then the Christian life is almost struggling with this idea that, well, I, okay, every day I'm going to try to submit to his lordship. I'm going to try to do what he wants me. And it felt like an additive. It felt like, Again, a bait and switch. Get saved, but now that we got you in the door, like you said, on your way out, hey, by the way, you, you need to live at Jesus as Lord Monday through Saturday. And that, to me, uh, uh, aborts, if you will, the gospel for believers. The gospel, the good news that Jesus is king is as much for believers as unbelievers. I need to hear the gospel every day. I need to believe the gospel every day. And what I love about your book is you, you're saying, look, the reason it's malformed is because this kind of gospel produces malformed disciples. Is that too strong to say? No, <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Or produces no disciples, even worse, right? Um, oh. As people yeah, just uh, feel like, well, I did, I did my business with God, right? I trusted in this message, and now my business is taken care of with God, and I'm kind of good to go. No, I don't think that's too strong of a way to put it at all. Um, so, yeah, when I kind of present the fuller gospel um, as I'm trying to track what Scripture says about it, um, I, uh, in this book and other books, articulate that as a 10-part gospel that has a Trinitarian dimension to it, because this is really how the New Testament frames it, that it begins with God the Father sending the Son. Right. And so as God, the father sends the son, this is part of God's plan all along. Right. This is something he even promised in advance. Right. In the Old Testament. And so that um, there was an anticipation of these things that the son then takes on human flesh. Right. The incarnation then as part of the gospel. And that's actually really important. And we can discuss this maybe more. That's actually how we begin to see the glory. Um, and the glory is really critical to understanding the why of the gospel. 
Um, and then after Jesus takes on human flesh, he, of course, lives in that human flesh and dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We don't want to forget that the cross is really central here to what we're talking about. Uh, and then as confirmation that his death was real, um, uh, that it, uh, it's, it's, it's mentioned that it was in accordance with the scriptures anticipated in the Old Testament, but also that he's buried. Uh, his death was not just a sham. He was actually buried in the ground. And then he was raised on the third day. That's also said to be in accordance with the scriptures as part of the gospel. So the resurrection, very much part of the gospel too. And then confirmation of the resurrection. He appeared to many witnesses. Witnesses saw him. Uh, then that's often where we stop the gospel, I find. And that's a large part of the problem that I'm trying to correct in, in, these, in this series of books. Uh, and we often stop there and we don't go to the next thing that is actually really central to the gospel. We, we don't even include it. And that's that Jesus is, then ascends to the right hand of God the Father where he's enthroned. Um, and that's be, and that's why we would say that Jesus is the Christ. This is actually the moment where he becomes the Christ in the fullest way, right? As he's now ruling at the very right hand of God and exercising his high priestly office at God's right hand. So we can't leave that part out, right? Because that's actually his present horizon. Where is Jesus now? He's at the right hand of the Father ruling on our behalf. And that's actually the, the climax of the gospel would be how I would describe that. Um, and then what does he do once he's enthroned at the right hand? Well, he sends the Spirit, right? The Father and the Son send the Spirit. And that's why I would say there's a Trinitarian dimension to all this. We have uh, the Father sending the Son, and then the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, right? And then finally, um, Jesus will come again as the, the judge. That's actually part of the gospel, too, as Paul articulates that in Romans chapter 2. Oh, wow. So, okay. So, yeah, so that's the full gospel, oh, there, as yeah, I would present it. It's a narrative. It's a story. That's right. It doesn't surprise us that when the New Testament writers say, how am I going to tell? I'll tell the story of Jesus because Jesus is the gospel. At Jesus is king. So I want to back up and look at a couple of things. First, some of our listeners may not know that the word Christ means the anointed one, right? And the Hebrew word, Mashiach, uh, anointed one. And so that's an, that you might say that's a synonym for king. When you hear Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, it's Jesus the king. So here's the question, Matt. Jesus does spend a lot of time in the gospels announcing the kingdom, how come he doesn't go around saying, I'm the king? Or another way of putting it is, you know, Pilate says, you know, you speak of a kingdom, like, hint, hint, what are you, what are you claiming here? And of course, he's crucified because he, they say he claimed to be king, king over Caesar, and that'll get you killed in first century Rome. So why doesn't he go around saying, the king is here, the king is here, or did he? Maybe not explicitly, but did he? In other words, help us understand how the Gospels present Jesus as the king. You did a quick kind of run through, but let's talk more specifically about that. Yeah, that's a huge question, right? Um, as um, even the title Son of God had royal overtones, right? We see this in Psalm 2 and uh, other texts. And so even the claim that Jesus is God's son, like we would want to see that within its the ancient Near Eastern context, uh, you know, in Mediterranean context as connected to a royal claim. Now it's more than that, right? It's an, it becomes a full, what we might call an ontological or claim about being, right? Um, whenever we want to press that to its fullness, right? That he is really the son of God, right? Um, but it's all so it doesn't mean that it's uh, that 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 further claim that he really is the son of God doesn't evacuate the son of God of, of its royal overtones too, 
right? So um, I think we would want to see that as being part of his claim. But of course, the claim um, that Jesus is the Christ is something that is a key moment in the Gospels as a turning point. We have that very famous moment at Caesarea Philippi, right? where uh, Jesus's disciples um, come to, to Jesus. They're having a discussion. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They throw out a couple suggestions. You know, some say Elijah, others say John the Baptist. You know, but then Jesus kind of presses them and says, what about you? Right. Well, what are you going to say? And, and that's always the ultimate question, right? Like, how, how are we going to identify Jesus at the end of the day? And then Peter makes that confession, right? You are the Christ. As, that's what we'd find in, in Mark and Luke. Now, Matthew adds something beyond that. You know, you are the, uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, and so both of those titles, right, are, are royal messianic kinds of things. And, and Jesus doesn't resist that claim. What he does is he begins to redefine that claim. Right, is immediately after that, he begins to, to talk to Peter about suffering, right? And says, okay, like if I am this Messiah whom you've indicated, right, this Christ, let me tell you about what is going to happen to me. And as Jesus begins to narrate that, of course, Peter is distraught. These things aren't going to possibly happen to you. And then Jesus has to rebuke Peter and those in that very strong language, get behind me, Satan. Right, so um, we do see that Jesus has accepted the title, that he is indeed the Christ, but he has to redefine that for his followers, lest they have the wrong kind of idea about what a Christ might be. And what is that um, wrong so, idea? I mean, the first century world, you've, you're an expert in this. What, what, what That word Messiah, Christ, the Greek word, so you've got a Greek word and a Hebrew word. They both mean the same thing. That that came with a lot of baggage. I mean, in a first century world, right, the different Jewish groups even had different ideas of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. But if you were to say they had a wrong idea, what is what was like the common? You know, Jesus is king. He comes announcing a kingdom. He acts like he's the one who's going to usher in, that this reign is going to come through him. And by the way, it looks like he does reign over sin, uh, over death. He raises from the dead. It looks like, indeed, he does reign over sickness, disease, right? So there's this evidence of his power, but, and that, that what, by the way, I think would have quickened the consciousness of the people saying, oh my goodness, you know, um, this guy can deliver the goods. I mean, he, he can do it. Uh, and then when he starts talking about, uh, you know, dying, that just so what the freight that this word carried dr bates what what did it mean in peter's ears when he says you're the christ peter has an idea of what that's supposed to look like and why was jesus's view of the messiah so if you will upside down yeah i'll draw here from one of my favorite scholars nt Wright, uh, as he speaks about this um, but he would speak about it primarily in terms of um throwing off the foreign the foreign occupation Right, um, the Romans are in charge uh, in Judea, and what is a what is a Christ going to do? Uh, well, he's going to throw off the oppressor, um, and they looked back to uh, various other heroes, um, you know, like Judas Maccabee, who managed to overthrow the Greek oppressors, right? Um, and they celebrated that at Hanukkah. Um, and similarly, like there are actually other people that Josephus, a historian, describes from this era, who put themselves forward or other people put them forward as Christ figures in some way or another, that they were making kingly claims. And what do they do again and again and again? They, uh, they try to, in some way, 
um, throw off the Roman oppression. And then Wright adds a second piece to that, saying the second thing that the, the king was expected to do would be to restore the temple in some way. Mm. Right. And the temple was being rebuilt as part of a long process in Jesus's day. Herod the Great uh, and then um, subsequently Herod Antipas like that. There, there's an involvement uh, by the various Herod, Her, the, the whole Herodian dynasty in trying to uh, continue to rebuild that temple. Um, and so that's why, you know, in John, you know, um, when Jesus says he's going to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days, they say it's, it's been 46 years, you know, the temple's been, been rebuilt. Um, so that's what a king would do, um, that in some way he would um, restore the temple. And you, you imagine people probably had Ezekiel's temple uh, as he has this eschatological temple, this end times temple, right, that he describes it toward the end of his book, that they would have had something like that in view and hopes that in, in hopes that the Messiah would maybe bring this glorious new temple and everything that would attend that blessed new age that this king would bring this about so i think that's primarily uh, those would be some of the primary hopes for a king they were looking for a messiah for this world on this world's terms so i i can imagine why peter is so confused when he promises to die for jesus and when the time comes he's going to die so he t- takes the sword and we find out eventually it's peter and john's gospel and he's gonna he's gonna go hacking for the kingdom for the king he's out to protect and I've wondered if it ever came back to him, this this teaching that Jesus gave early in his ministry, according to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, it's about loving your enemies, not killing them. So you mentioned that Jesus, so the reign of Christ comes in ways that are just upside down by giving your life instead of taking the life of others, loving your enemies, all these things he's teaching, and he's living, he's embodying it. When he sees a Roman soldier he who comes to him and needs some help, he helps him which must have seemed like treason to the average Jew, right? So you say, rightfully so, and although Luke is the only one that emphasizes this in his gospel and and the the book of Acts, the ascension, if Christ reigns now, and this is the most common question I get, all right, so you're saying Jesus reigns now. He reigns in heaven and he reigns on earth. How does that work? We still have imperial powers we've got wicked governments we've got you know how in the world can you say christ reigns now at the right hand of god when it seems like he's kind of totally disconnected from what's happening in the real world yeah i think we could speak about that in a couple ways i think we would want to say functionally jesus is present in terms of his ruling capacity through the holy spirit so whenever people gather together in the name of Jesus and they actually don't just stop at admiring him or paying attention to his teachings or singing some praise songs, but they actually go beyond that to say, you are the king. <laughs> like when we gather with other people, we need to acknowledge that we say, Jesus, you are the king and you rule over me right now. When we make that claim, the Holy Spirit, I think, is present in a special way where right? Jesus actually begins to rule in our midst. Um, and so I think that a new politic emerges from there. Like Jesus is really the king right in that space, right? And the, the Holy Spirit really is guiding God's people. And so I do think that it has a real, this worldly politic. And I think that's something that um, is often um, something that's misunderstood, I think, frequently is that it's like, well, Jesus isn't on the ballot, might be kind of the rhetoric you hear, um, which is true enough on the one hand. But on the other hand, it misses that the local church is to be the source of an alternative politic. We're to show the world that there is a better, a better um, 
political system. And it emerges actually from allowing Jesus's non-coercive rule to take place. And I think that's the part that is hard for us to grasp still. It was hard for Peter to grasp, still hard for us to grasp, is that Jesus actually um, wants to win us over through love, right? And then it's a non-coercive rule, meaning it's not forced on anybody. So that if I go out and I proclaim Jesus is my king and I begin to live in a cross-shaped fashion, and that's how I'm exercising my political force in the world, um, my political force is only one of persuasion. Um, it's not one that is going to be able to force people toward God's will. It's one that can only lure them. And I think um, we we just have to imitate our king in that way. This this is the kind of rule our king wants to implement during this present era. He really expects us to follow him. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> he expects us to uh, to make a great study of his life. We're supposed to be his learners, his disciples, his students. We're to, it, so we should spend as much time on the Gospels as the letters of Paul. Paul is a great resource for the church. But we should spend as much time on the Gospels learning from the one we claim to follow. And what that following looks like as we, we are indeed, like, you know, we the kingdom, you know, the church is the expression of the kingdom of God, the reign of God. As you say, when we gather, we are supposed to be a body politic that tells the world, here is an alternate society. This is what heaven on earth should look like. You're going to get forgiveness here. You're going to get grace and mercy. Your enemies are going to be loved here, and it's going to be endless. Generosity is eternal because grace is eternal. I mean, all these things we're supposed to embody as a people corporately is supposed to be a counter witness, right, to the world that basically says, no, the only way you can win in life is if you take care of yourself, look out for number one, grab all you can get, and step on your enemies in the process. So... Like you said, it's easier said than done, but all the more reason why, and you emphasize this towards the end of your book, why the gospel, this being a disciple is not just a personal thing. It's not something, it, it is personal. It's how I live my life, how I order my life following him, that the kingdom comes through sacrifice, not through a sort of, you know, attacking your enemy, but that as a people, it takes every single one of us to reveal the body of Christ to the world. And that cross-shaped life that you talked about, um, it, I think is more clearly seen, not in an individual, but into the whole church. So help us out, Dr. Bates. When we have these competing political allegiances coming at us, even for Christians in America that says, look, we've got problems with violence, we've got problems with sin, we've got problems with injustice, let's... Let's admit we're in the real world. You can talk about love. You can talk about all these things that Christians talk about. But if we really want to get something done to stop some of this evil, the nonsense, then we need to put as much energy, and some even say even more, and resources in a, an American political ideology that will bring justice now. Because they think Christianity is only about justice in the future, right, on the last day, when justice will come in its full expression when Christ returns. Help us understand, why is that also a malformed gospel? Why, is, why, is, why, why does uh, political allegiance to American ideologies or American political parties ends up compromising Jesus as king? Yeah, it doesn't end up being very Jesus-shaped at the end of the day, does it, right? Um, as we 
um, like people run to the left or run to the right, and they try to exercise this world, this worldly power, right, in order to force an agenda. That's exactly what Jesus rejects. That's what his disciples think he's going to do. That's what he wants. That, that's what his enemies think he's going to do in some ways, too. Um, but he does none of those things, but instead tries to absorb the evil um, and um, entrusts himself and his cause to God's care, knowing that mistreatment will happen. Um, but I think that the history of the church would show that um, as the church has um, been weak, as the church has been martyred, as the church has suffered, um, that's often when the church has grown most fully. And, um, and that's partly because that's whenever that power and weakness dimension, right, of what it means to follow Jesus is, mo is most manifest, uh, which the Apostle Paul knew very well, right, as, um, as he speaks much about um, how that's going to reveal the glory. And so at the end of the day, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the Christ, who is the image of God. And our job as the church is mostly to relentlessly and intentionally view Jesus. We need to come and see him. We need to approach him and we need to gaze upon him again and again and again because that's how transformation ensues for us and that's how we can become that alternative body politic right it's only as we keep looking at him and we go his ways are just strange and we, and we start <laughs> and, and they're hard living it picking yeah, up a cross every day is not easy yeah Dying is not easy. No. Um, and, you know, we're all learning it together, um, what this might mean. And I'm, I don't pretend to be above and uh, above in some way or, you know, like I've, I've somehow mastered all this myself. Um, I'm certainly in the beginning stages of learning um, still. But uh, I do think that we discover that Jesus's ways are indeed better and that there is a greater long term impact um, for um, the world through um, this alternative witness. I just think that we, we haven't become convinced that the local church can be an alternative politic. I think that's, uh, that's maybe part of it is just that we, we, we sort of are under the spell of a Christian nation idea and that we, we, we really think that that's where real politics happens. Real politics happens on the national level. I don't think that we've quite got the idea yet that no, it happens right where two or three gather in his name and they confess a king. That's where the real political power is at work in the world that will one day win the world. Right. Um, and so we, we just are not convinced of that yet. We can't we can't seem to get get that idea. It's almost like the church uh, in, in American Christianity for a while has been the weekend activity you do to kind of kind of reset for the week. That we, you know, we come together and, 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 and this is good. I mean, all this is good. We sing praises to to Christ as King. I must tell you, this was also kind of a, a moment of cognitive dissonance for me growing up in the church and going on to college. We would sing about King Jesus and about His kingdom and how He reigns, and and then throughout the week, I couldn't see it. I couldn't see how He reigns because He sounds so powerful and majestic, and He's Lord and. And indeed, he's he's defeated sin. He's defeated death. And we'll talk. I want to talk more about resurrection and glory in a minute. What that means. But but then Monday through Saturday, the world would just wear me out. I mean, I my heart would be so uh, basically abused by how uh, uh, mean the world can be. And then and so then I would come back on Sunday and go, oh, wait, but Jesus is King, and it felt. Again, like cognitive dissonance. I'm claiming one thing on Sunday, but I'm not seeing it Monday through Saturday because my idea of the way in which rain must work is through this American idea of 
power and um, however you want to describe it, making people do the right thing. As a matter of fact, I mean, I remember sometimes even in my early years of preaching, I thought if I could just make people do the right thing as if, you know, the spirit has no role in any of this. So that that disconnect, it, it, it really, you're so right. I mean, the church has not fully appreciated who we are as the embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ and therefore the politic that goes with it. I mean, the world divides us according to race. It divides us according to gender. To, you know, and Paul has this incredible vision. That, no, 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 no. You're still a man. You're still a woman. You're still a Jew. You're still a Gentile. But when we come together, something else has happened. This is a this is a people who their allegiance is not in their ethnicity or in their gender or whatever. Their allegiance is for the sake of the king. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things are added. So. Do you have an advice on how churches can get out of that thinking that that church is like an additive to our life, that Jesus is like salt that we put on our life, you know, to make it taste better, make us better, but that ends up being, you might say, the generative center of our identity, the, the originating power of what it means to truly be in the world but not of the world? Well, um, I don't know, I mean, that I have tons of super pragmatic on the ground level advice for pastors, given I'm not a pastor myself. I will say that our words matter um, and that how we frame these issues for people does uh, have an impact. And then if we want people to begin to get on board with an alternative way of thinking about what it means to be the church, we have to begin telling them the truth about what it means to be the church. And then we need to probably add um, you know, um, certain kinds of engagements that will allow people to um, uh, have have that different kind of ex, uh, experience that's a more allegiant oriented experience. But I think it does begin by telling people that Jesus is the king, that we're responding to him with allegiance, and then creating allegiance opportunities, right? That we, um, opportunities beyond just coming to worship, right? Or coming to learn, but experiential opportunities that are um, ways in which we can serve um, in an allegiant capacity. And that we can also um, give people opportunities to renew their allegiance. And so that I think there's a lot of people in the church who, you know, they were baptized, um, whether that was an infant baptism in some traditions or whether it was a baptism for many in you know, kind of a more Baptist setting, you know, age you know, eight through 12. Right. Um, many people came to a, a saving faith at that time, but it was to a savior, not a king. Um, and maybe over time, some of them have discovered the king part um, uh, as the Holy Spirit has been at work in their life and they've kind of gotten it. But they need that opportunity to renew their allegiance. Um, and I think that we can do this through a formal ceremony. I think I think it would be a great practice. Oh, that's for an interesting idea. A formal ceremony to swear allegiance yeah, to Jesus as king. I think, well, we should be doing that at our baptisms, period. Like, yeah, that's, that's what, baptism what baptism is, is isn't it? It's yeah. my life was no it, more, his life matters, I'm buried, yeah, yeah, raised with him. Yeah, like when we talk about being baptized into the name of Jesus, I think that like people like didn't really catch, um, I think especially even in Reformation Christianity, the degree to which this was oath language. Uh, anyway, well, that's a big topic. Uh, but I do think that a practice that I think would be great, I don't know if any church is doing this yet, at least I haven't heard of any, but that each year they did a like an allegiance ceremony. Like, oh, where it's like what if we did that on the— you re-pledge. What if you right? did that around the 4th of July? 
<laughs> yes, yes. Ah, wouldn't that oh, be I love it. I love it, Rodney. Yeah, <laughs> that's that would be really powerful. Truly, it would be. Um, I love how you're thinking. So I don't know of any churches that are doing that. I mean, there are a lot of churches that are using allegiance language now. There's a lot of churches that are doing a variety of things connected to it, but I don't know that any have instituted a formal ceremony. Now, I know churches that are doing that around baptism, like where now baptism is now a swearing of allegiance. In fact, my own home church does this now. Um, and so we'll see, right, um, how, yeah, church, church traditions continue to morph in, I think, helpful ways that recapture the spirit of earliest Christianity. That's great, man. Fantastic. All right. Boy, there's so much more I want to talk with you, Matt, but I just want to end with this. You talked about glory and you mentioned, you know, what glory, what does it mean to live for the glory of God and how that, how the glory of God is revealed through Jesus, who is the perfect image. And this idea of bearing the image of God that goes all the way back to Adam and fulfilled in Christ. So help us understand, when we talk about living out the glorious gospel, or what does it mean to experience and therefore to be an expression of the glory of God with regards to the fact that Jesus is the perfect image of God and we're being conformed to that image? What does it have to do with the reign of God in the kingdom? Yeah. So I think one way of putting it would be that we often think of salvation from a self-centered framework. Like I need something is the idea. Like, okay, like I realize, okay, I've got this deficit in my account. I need my sins forgiven. Um, like I need to get out of hell. I need to um, get on back on a, a right relationship. With God. However, that's framed, right? It's framed primarily from a, a perspective of human lack. What about if we think about it from God's vantage point would be something that I try to encourage in the book. Like what's God's problem he's trying to solve through the gospel. And it's not just that we're alienated from him. There's something deeper going on there. And really the, the way of thinking about this is thinking about God's purpose in creating humans within his broader creation project, right? That God creates humans in his image so that, that the humans can then superintend creation. They can watch it, they can steward it. And this is, a, this is described in the Old Testament as, as spreading God's glory. There's a dimension of glory that is distributed so that all of creation comes to experience God through God's image. That's what God designed humans to do, was to bear his image properly so that all of creation experiences God's glory. The problem is, of course, then we choose to go our own way, which really the essence of sin is we deny God's kingship over our lives, right? We say, no, I want to choose what's right and wrong for myself. I want to choose what's good and evil for myself. I don't want to follow what you say is good and evil, God, anymore. So it's really a rejection of his sovereignty, of his kingship. Mm. And so the problem that God's trying to solve then through the gospel is one that's as wide as creation. Like, how can I get my glory to all of creation again? That's a right? like really good point. Creation is being harmed. So what we need then is we need the restoration of, uh, we don't, like the problem with sin is not just sin in and of itself, as if getting rid of sin is God's goal. Like God wants to get rid of sin because whenever we sin, we don't distribute glory. Like he wants the glory to flow again. So um, this, this connects to then our fundamental identity is what it mean, of what it means to be human, right? We need to be, we need to see the glorious King. And that's why Jesus's kingship matters so much is because he's, he's not just the divine King. He's now the divine and the human King. And we now see what optimal humanity looks like. 
we can now gaze on King Jesus, and we can then, through that process of gazing, that's how our glory is restored as we are transformed into his image. Yeah. So that we become glorious again, and that we can then distribute glory to creation. And then our work matters, right? Everything that we do matters. Our jobs that we do as electrical engineers or janitors or teachers or whatever it might be, those are all opportunities to like move through a process of restoration so that glory can be radiated outward again. Oh, that's and that's, so that's how it all connects to the gospel. Oh, that's so good, Matt. Uh, you know, we are co-regents. God made us and said, get dominion. Take care of this, as you say. And we needed someone to really bring dominion to the earth. And that's why Christ came to show us what the kingdom is supposed to look like. He's the king. He orders everything. He takes an upside down world and turns it right side up. He makes, this is what God intended all along. This is the gracious God, the merciful God. This is the loving, generous God that we we worship and serve as his co-regents. And so, beautiful point, as we are reigning with Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, then we are extending the glory, that, that co-regency, to the ends of the earth to reclaim every inch of what God has made. What sin has tried to destroy, God has reclaimed through Christ. So the resurrection then, we, we, that resurrection is something we experience now of a reclamation of all things, but a resurrection in the end where God truly, like leaven, leavens the whole lump and uh, earth is restored to its beautiful glory. Man, thanks so much. Boy, I so appreciate your work. You you have an incredible gift, not only to take theology that can be sometimes really complicated and overwhelming, and make it it accessible for the church. Um, And so thanks so much for your good work. Get this book, Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose. I guarantee you it will help you understand what it means to seek the kingdom first because Jesus is king first. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Ronnie.